Hello. We want to thank you for joining our Living Messiah family by downloading this podcast. We hope it blesses you and enriches your life. We also want to encourage you, uh, if you can, and if your heart is so moved, to support this ministry by going on our website, livingmessiah.com, and donating to help us to put these podcasts in every nation, every place, so we can bring these messages to change lives, to help people grow in the Word of God. Once again, thank you so much for being part of our family. Shalom. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. Open our hearts and our minds today. Teach us, Father. We want to learn from you of your paths, your ways, your decrees, the things that you have declared for your set-apart people to walk in because we want to be kingdom citizens. We glorify you and praise you. In your son, Yahushua's name, we give thanks. Amen. Okay, Mount Sinai. So what are we going to talk about today? So I'm going to mention this. I mentioned last week. We have some new people. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, make sure all you guys welcome them immensely. We're so glad to have you. So I'm guessing I talked to you on the phone? Okay, perfect. All right. So I know who you are for sure. I kind of had a feeling that's who you were, but we're glad to have you. So here at Living Messiah, we're, we break down the meanings of the words and the verses based on the lexicons, the dictionaries, the original languages of the Hebrew and the Greek. And this gives us more clarity of what is being said in our text today. Unlike a lot of communities, uh, the person who's giving the message will just pick something from anywhere in Scripture, but we're going right through what our portion is about, and we're learning weekly what Abba's, our daily bread, as the portions are for that week. It's a little different, and I'll be honest, it's a little harder to do it this way because how easy would it be just to pick what you want to speak about? But here we're, we're speaking about what Abba has directed for us to learn today. So today we're going to talk about Zion, the, the Mount Zion. We're going to talk about discipline, but not discipline as you would get when uh, you were at school and back in the day when you'd get the paddle on the backside. Not that kind of discipline. We're going to talk about a different discipline, which is really related to what our Father is doing on this mountain to His people. He's going to give them discipline. And so we're going to start off, which it really, it really talks about it in our New Testament portion, which is Hebrews chapter 12. So if you, want to, if you have your Bibles open, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse 18. And it says, For you have not drawn near to a mountain touched and scorched with fire, and to blackness and darkness and storm and a sound of a trumpet, and a voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear what was commanded. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot through with an arrow. And so fearsome was the sight that Moshe said, I exceedingly fear and tremble. But you have drawn near to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living Elohim to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of messengers, to the entire gathering and assembly of the firstborn, having been enrolled in heaven, and to Elohim, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Yahushua, the mediator of a, I'll interject, renewed covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, which speaks better than the blood of Abel, or Chabel. What in the world is he talking about? So as I read this, I wanted to present a better clarity 
of two things he draws a comparison to. He's comparing Sinai with Zion, and he's comparing uh, Yehushua's blood with the blood of Abel. So what's that all about? We're going to dig into that. We're going to see what this contrast is all about. So let's jump in. So verse 24 says, he's the mediator of a better covenant, the better than the blood of Habel. So having gone to great lengths to demonstrate that the blood of Messiah cleanses completely and forever from, and we talked about this over the past few weeks, from the penalty or the punishment of sin, the author makes a striking statement that the master's blood speaks also. What does he mean that it speaks better than Abel's blood? After Cain had killed Abel, Abel's blood cried out to Elohim from the ground for judgment, a figurative way of saying that the murder, murderer must be met with justice. Furthermore, 1 Enoch 22, 5-7 says that Abel continued to plead for vengeance on the descendants of Cain, wishing all of his brothers' seed to be exterminated. Based on the Tanakh's text confession of Abel's blood as speaking, the author of Hebrews proclaims that the master's blood speaks a better word. What is that? Whereas Abel's blood cries out for justice, your Messiah's blood cries out that justice has been met with his sacrifice, and his blood, in other words, says, you're forgiven. So instead of judgment, it's forgiveness. And that's the contrast that the writer is making, which is really awesome. Okay? If you have questions, we have an open mic policy here, so uh, everybody has the opportunity to, to comment, speak, or ask questions, and so it's, it's a way we learn together, okay? So, but why contrast the mountain? What, so we see now why the contrast of the two bloods. That makes sense. But what's with the mountain? By contrast, the participants in the renewed covenant have come to Mount Zion, the dwelling place of Elohim, a place of relationships. Mount Zion and the city of Jerusalem are so closely related in biblical literature that the two at times are practically synonymous, representing the dwelling place of God. Notice the poetic parallelism in passages like Joel 2.32 and Micah 4.2, Amos 1.2, which states, Yahweh roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem." In keeping with the author's apocalyptic framework, the city to which new covenanters have come is the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly city mentioned in Hebrews 11.16, and the city that is to come of 13.14. Now, that's this commentator's point. As I really dug into this, and I'm going to present something to you that I'm not saying is 100% definite. I had some thoughts come to me that I thought, this is interesting. I don't know for sure if this is the real meaning of what I'm going to present of the contrast, but it's definitely interesting in light of, so I typed in Zion in my search engine and pulled up every text that it talks about Zion, and I think you're going to be interested in what we see. So I'm going to share something with you. So the mountain Sinai had a boundary set around it, that if you touched it, it brought what? Death. Mount Zion is something different. It brings life to all who touch it. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, I get that. It makes sense that Mount Zion, but the master in my mind died on the Mount of Olives. 
So what does, of course, Mount Zion is is separate from Mount Moriah, where the Temple Mount is. So there's, there's three different mountains here, actually four, but the the one has kind of faded into history that's between them. But there was another valley that went up between Mount Zion and Mount Moriah, and uh, I'm going to show you that here in a second. So, but if 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 Mount Zion, as this writer says in Hebrews is contrasted to the mountain that brought death, that Mount Zion is bringing life. What is going on here? So as I began to think about it, and especially as I read all of the scriptures about Zion, I'm just throwing out a question. I'm not for certain. I don't know. I'm throwing a question. Could the master have died on Mount Zion instead of Mount of Olives? I want you to just consider for a minute and think about what you see. So it caused me to think about this. So I pulled up a map. I have some tools here. Now, this is me and my daughter, Rakaya. We happen to be standing on this place right here. Now, how many of you know what Golgotha is all about? Isn't this where it says that he took the cross and he went to Golgotha? So Golgotha is here on, this is Mount Zion right here. As you can see, it says Mount Zion. And there's a valley, this Tyropopian Valley that runs up in between these two mounts. And so here's the city of David and Mount Moriah. So this is a whole different mountain here. And of course, on this side of the Kidron Valley is the Mount of Olives. So this whole area right here is Mount Zion. Okay? So if the Messiah literally died, if they, if they believe that Golgotha is here on Mount Zion and he died somewhere in here, that is very interesting. Tradition has it that he's up here in the northern part, way above the out, outside the city walls at the garden tomb, which I don't agree with. But this would be an interesting location based on this idea of Mount Zion has bringing life versus Mount Sinai, if you touch it, brings death. I mean, the writer's making the contrast, okay? So my daughter and I are standing here at this spot, on the morning, as the sun rises, you can see it's just sun rising, on the first day of the first month in Israel, first day of the first month, which is the day that the tabernacle is erected for the first time. And it's a very special day because it's the day of the equinox. It happens to be uh, the first day of the first month this year, in 2018, happened on the day of the equinox. So it's a very special day. And we got to be there as a witness for this day. So let's look at the passages about Mount Zion. If Mount Zion is where he died, watch what says here. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion, survivors. What does survivors mean? The survivor word is this word, pelata. It means to escape, but watch what it says further. This is the very bottom down here. Right here is where we're talking about this word, survivors. So it says, to someone who has escaped from a calamity, a survivor, their survival is only of Elohim's mercy. As a matter of fact, our word means not only escape, but also deliverance, as in salvation. Hmm. Out of Mount Zion are going to be saved and delivered people. The zeal of Yahweh will perform this. Look at Psalm 2.6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Oh, that the salvation of Israel will come out of Zion. 
When Yahuwah restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. But if Mount Zion is said, this one and that one were born in her. As in born again? Question mark. I don't know. Just kind of, I'm like, wow, that's pretty crazy. And the Most High himself will establish her. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king. The sons of Zion in their king. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. What will the kings of the nations answer? Yahweh has founded Zion, and the humble among the people will be saved through him. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, See, I will lay for the foundations of Zion a precious choice stone. Now we know this is referring to the master, a highly valued cornerstone for its foundations. And the one who believes in him will not be put to shame, the foundations of Zion. Look, the city of Zion is our salvation. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a wealthy city, tents that will not be shaken, nor will the shakes, nor will the stakes of the tent be removed forever, for its ropes, nor its ropes be broken. Isaiah 35. And those gathered together because of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with joy. As a matter of fact, the reason we stood at this location that morning is because I believe this is where the Messiah will stand as the people and the nations are gathered to him. Gladness and joy shall take hold of them. Pain and sorrow and sighing have fled away. Because from Yushalayim shall be those who are left and from Mount Zion... Those who are saved, the zeal of Yahuwah Zebaot, shall do these things. And then one last section. These are all the ones about Zion. I brought near my righteousness, and I will not delay the salvation that comes from me. I have provided salvation in Zion to Israel for glorifying. And those who have been ransomed, for by Yahuwah they shall be returned to Shuva. And come to Zion with joy and everlasting gladness. Wouldn't that, I mean, just think about it. If, if, you know what, Yeshua says, I came only for the lost sheep. And so it's the lost sheep that are returning, but they're returning to the Messiah who died. And if it happened here at Mount Zion, there's a lot of significance here, especially with this verse here. They will return and come to Zion with joy and everlasting gladness. I mean, we've come to know the king, come to rejoice in him. We've had, I mean, we're all, I mean, look at the, the joy and the dancing and the celebration. We've, we, that's only because of what he did for us at his death and opening our eyes to his Torah. And finally, in Isaiah 51, 16, I will put my words in your mouth, shelter you under the shadow of my hand by which I establish heaven and laid the foundation of the earth. And he will say to Zion, you are my people. Why is that interesting? Because in Hosea, he said to them, you are not my people. So it has to be a direct reference to those people who were told, you're not my people. But because they've come to Zion, they now get to say, you are my people. Just, I mean, these are just, I'm presenting this to you to think about. We don't have to make any declarations. I just thought, man, as I was weighing the contrast that the writer is here, did he know something I didn't know about Mount Zion? Don't know. Ponder on that. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts as uh, the weeks go on. Oh, wait, I have another page. Hold on.
like seasons upon the mountains, like the feet of one bringing glad tidings of a report of peace, like one bringing glad tidings of good things, because I will make your salvation heard, saying to Zion, your God shall reign. For see, Yahweh has made it to be heard to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see, your Savior comes to you, having his own reward and his work before him. And it shall be everyone who calls on the name of Yahuwah shall be saved. Because in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be one who escapes, as Yahuwah has said, and the people who have good news announced to them whom Yahuwah has called. Who got the good news? I mean, this is, isn't this where the Messiah told the apostles to go? You're going to proclaim the good news to a group of people? He, he told them, you're only going to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Interesting. And then Joel. And Yahweh shall cry out from Zion and give his voice from Jerusalem, and the sky shall be shaken, the earth. But Yahweh will spare his people, and Yahweh will strengthen the sons of Israel. I have one more passage to read to you. And it comes to you from Jeremiah 3.14. It says, Return, O faithless sons, declares Yahuwah, for I am a master to you, and I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Hmm. Ponder on those things. Okay. So I want to continue on in our Hebrews portion, Hebrews 12.5. It says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the master. Now a lot of people would look at this and go, yeah, he's... They're getting punished. They're getting disciplined because they didn't obey. They're getting a good spanking. Uh, he's sending uh, the city, this nation against them, and they're going to be taken into captivity. That's the discipline he's talking about. Someone have their hand up? Go ahead. What you were saying earlier, it just reminded me of Galatians 4. Um, I was thinking about Hagar and Jerusalem. Um, Another contrast. And, and yeah, so if I, I can read it a little bit. But for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants, one covenant from Mount Zion. And it continues, and it says, um, but... But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Be glad, barren woman who never bore a child. I just thought that was an interesting, with what you're saying, I, somehow I think it goes together. And, he, and then one of the verses had, had connected the city from above with Zion. So yeah, it's some interesting things to think about, uh, something to ponder on. It's very, very interesting to me. So, um, yes. So what? Okay. Uh, somebody want to give him the map, uh, the mic, map, the mic. <laughs> so Zion, you can see right here. Whoop. So see, it says modern Mount Zion would be this whole hill here. So here is the the valley that separates Mount Zion from what would be Mount Moriah that goes here from the city of David up to where the temple is. So just to the, and you can see the walls, the external walls here. And then, of course, uh, Golgotha and all of this was in uh, the wall of Herod in 41 to 44 AD. So Golgotha is traditionally thought of as being there. I don't know how he did that, but 
So it's thought of being here, and so it's this whole area here would be Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, or City of David, and the Temple Mount being over here. And that's the temple right there. Temple is right Isn't here. Isn't historically yeah. the temple's doors? See, it says Dome of the Rock right here. Yeah. Golden Gate, uh, Gethsemane over here, uh, corner of the platform, the Kidron Valley okay. is running right here along this side, and of course the City of David comes up here. Isn't it traditional synagogues, temples, tabernacles, the doors are on the east side? Say again? The temples and tabernacles, wasn't the entrance on the east side of the building? Yeah, so the, so the, the temple tabernacle would be entrance on the... And I have a feeling where you're going to, because I thought of this thing. Yeah, thing. I'm trying how to did, reconcile. How did the soldier see, see the veil torn? Yeah, I thought of the same thing. Because I've always found different things with Zion being region in another. I appreciate your, your yeah. thought there. Yeah. I'm just trying to reconcile my understanding with the veil being torn in Kidron yeah. Valley and, and walking so, across. And could it be? I mean, we're looking at one verse. And, and I've, we've put to all these verses about Zion, and even the writer of Hebrews is contrasting these two things, like Zion is where life came to you from. And they put Golgotha, which the New Testament says the master was, he took the cross and carried it to Golgotha. So it's just, it's some really interesting things to think about that the writer of Hebrews, in his mind, he's thinking, yeah, where the master died, this is where life came. And you had a boundary around Mount Sinai that if you touched it, death was what came. So it's interesting thing to think about. Okay. Okay, another question. Go ahead. Back here. See, we learned together here. Okay, so I'm just curious. You said that you were standing there with your daughter because you were thinking that uh, that would be the spot. That it, 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 because it was a very unique day. For one, the first day of the first month, doesn't, a new moon doesn't always happen on the day of the equinox. It happens once every so many years. And so because it was that way that year, I wanted to be, I wanted to be there that year on that place the morning that the sun rose. And here's, I'm going to get to the reason why. So when you're, when you're positioning the tabernacle to east, and the Father says you shall point it to east, you know, did they go, hmm, let's see here. Uh, I think that might, it might be right east. Or did they go by the only way to, to determine the true east direction is when the sun rises on the day of the equinox, it points out 100% true east. So I stood on Mount Zion and filmed the location of the sunrise looking east because I wanted to see what mountain it rose over. Whole another story for another topic, but anyway, so yeah, that's why that's one of the reasons I was there, other than that it was uh, these other things that were very interesting. Yes, Dan. Again, I'm not making a definitive. I'm just presenting something to think about. It's very interesting about Mount Zion and the contrast that was made. Yes. Uh, I just want to tie in the context of chapter 11 with with our chapter 12 passage, and it's. Just a couple verses. For those who say such things make it clear that they are not seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a country that is a heavenly one. <laughs> Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. And in our passage, he's saying, you haven't come to a mountain 
that you can touch, right. like Mount Sinai, even though you would die if you did, it was a tangible thing. Yep. I think he's communicating that in the new covenant, we are seeking the heavenly Jerusalem by faith in this time. We are not a nation. Yep. We are scattered all over the world, but we're seeking Yahuwah by faith and obeying his commandments. And as we obey his commandments, we're telling him, I want your eternal city. When it comes, when our king comes, I want to be part of your kingdom. Amen. And I think everybody that is, that's, he's opening their minds to now, everybody that's coming to Torn out, that's where, that's where I, this community, that's where we're at. You know, that's, that's our mindset that that's what we have. We want to be there to that. The heavenly city, not something that man has done. We want the things from above, not the things that fade away and are destroyed here. So I agree 100%. Yes. Mark, could you go back to the map again? Yeah. I'm just trying to reconcile. So looking at the map there and Golgotha and then the Church of the Holy Sepulchre mm-hmm. and then where you're standing, when, when I was there, um, inside the current city walls and then the church of the holy sepulcher it's all city there so i'm trying to reconcile where exactly you were at so if you if you went through this the 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 church of the holy sepulcher if you continued to go west you come out to a looks like a playground there's swings out there there's actually a a, they've got a a a cage around another hole that goes into the ground that's another cave system that goes into the ground there we're standing there. As a matter of fact, on the far on the left there, you can see the cage where that that stonework is guarding the entrance down, and where they think is another place uh, that reference to David. So that's where we're at, and it's it, it's technically technically uh, probably that, right right there. over there more. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. We're right on. So you can see we're on the edge because the stone wall there it starts dropping down into the next valley. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 2018. Yeah, March 17th, 2018. Okay. All right. I had no idea that would go to to that degree, but uh, all right. So think of this. He says, do not regard lightly the discipline. I want to know what discipline he's referring to because if he's referring to discipline as instruction, and he's telling them after the death and resurrection of Messiah that you're not to regard lightly the teaching of the Torah. This is huge. So let's look at it. By the way, the word discipline also appears in Proverbs 3.11, Job 5.17. And I want to emphasize Ephesians 6.4, which is the same word. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the master. So our word discipline is this word pedia, and it means education, training up, nurturing of the children, instruction, discipline. It's to provide instruction with the intent of of forming proper habits of behavior. How many of you would say that by coming to God's instructions, you're learning the proper (laughs) instruction for behavior, how to behave properly? It's to teach, to instruct, to train. Watch this as the law, as the taskmaster, because its education is from Elohim. That's what he's meaning when he says discipline. Don't regard lightly the Torah as your taskmaster because that's the education from Elohim that you're getting. 
Now, since we're in our Torah portion of, the, of coming down the Torah at Sinai, this is huge because what I'm, the whole message today is about the teaching from the, the Master and what it's supposed to bring for us. Teach me, Abba, how to be holy and set apart. Proverbs 1.7, we, we talked about that last week for our new guests. We took the words of the fear of the Lord, which is in the Scriptures everywhere, uh, and put them up everywhere it appeared. And everywhere it appears, it's in the, in the same verse it's talking about keeping the commands, keeping the Torah. So the, they understood that the phrase, the fear of the Lord, meant keeping, keeping His commands, okay? So I could not find a single teaching in the commentaries, and I've got probably 20 commentaries in my program. I couldn't find a single one talking about this word discipline, meaning teaching and instruction. It was all teaching about that means, you know, like, the, like, like destruction or, you know, that kind of... Isn't that funny how the... the Modern theology doesn't, they haven't looked at this that way. I just, I thought that was kind of interesting. Anyhow, so we're going to continue on here in verse 7. If you endure discipline, Elohim is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? Wasn't our father Abraham instructed to teach his children the Torah? Yes, he was. But if you are without discipline, of which of all have become sharers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Ouch. Moreover, we indeed had fathers of our flesh disciplining us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? You see where he's making connection with discipline from Elohim above. For they indeed disciplined us for a few days, as seemed best to them, but he does it for our profit so that we might share his set-apartness, his holiness. Because if we get instructed, we learn how to become holy as he is holy. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across here. So he says, pursue peace with all and pursue holiness and sanctification without which... No one's going to see the Messiah. She's not going to see him. Yes. So the passage in Hebrews 12, in the, in the verse right after, it says, To whom Yahuwah loves, oh, no, sorry, zoom up a little bit. Uh, My son, do, who do not despise the discipline of Yahuwah, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Now, what does that does that word "reproved" mean? Instruction, or does it mean admonish, or chastise? So the word uh, the mind says discipline is this word paedia, which means uh, the Torah is the taskmaster. Is this the verse you're talking about? Twelve five. Mind says discipline. So it's this Greek word. Yeah. And then initially how they want to make it look like reprove as you, you're being spanked or you're being corrected when in reality it's about you being instructed on how to live a holy life. That's what the writer is trying to get across. Yes. Were you bringing up Deuteronomy 11? Say it one more time. Were you going to touch Deuteronomy 11? Um, I don't want to jump. No. 
Okay, Deuteronomy 11, uh, therefore love Yahuwah your Elohim and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. Know this th- th- day that I am not speaking with your sons who have not known and who have not seen the discipline of Yahuwah of your Elohim, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm. That word discipline, again, is um, Musar, and it actually means uh, restraint or instruction. So, you know, if you are instructing your children and you say, one, I want you to play only in the yard. Do not go outside of the front yard or the backyard. You're giving them some restraints along with those instructions. They're contained within one another. So he's basically telling them that you saw the discipline or the instruction of Yahuwah, and he's talking about the context of the mountain and the Torah. And if you catch what he said, this Greek word, when I looked it up, is the word used in in place of uh, that Hebrew word, uh, musar, right? Yeah, so it's the, it's, it, this is the Greek word used for musar, which, is, as he said, means, you know, instruction. So it's, it's pretty clear. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead, Dan. Uh, I agree 100% with what you're saying, that he, inst- he instructs us, but the second half of that verse is he scourges every son whom he receives. And that word is not instruction. That word is flogging. <laughs> so if we don't heed to the instruction he gives us as a son, then there's another form of discipline that yep. comes upon us for the purpose. That really is the If father. we will submit to it, which Israel never would, if we will submit to it, he will bring us into set-apartness where we will see the master. Like, and, and why would a loving God do that? It's because he said he would do it, and because he keeps his word, he's going to do as he said. He's just going to keep what he promised. Yes. I think... Uh... If uh, the discipline you're talking about, that makes sense because I think we think of discipline as you did something wrong and now you're going to be gonna corrected. You're going to get it, yeah. But really, like a father disciplines their child, you instruct them, you teach them, that's the discipline. You're teaching them how to act in society, how to treat their friends and their, their parents and whatnot. So, yeah, what uh, Dan's talking about it could lead to scourging if you just if you continue to uh, stray away. But if you're taught, like the scripture says, teach a child the way he should go, and um, you know, if if you teach your child not to put your hand in the fire, yeah, and they do, that's a consequence, and that's really what you're getting at is by not doing what he said, there's going to be consequences <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yes. So thank you, Dan. That's exactly what, because I, I saw that word um, uh, reprove, and when I was looking in the Greek and the, and the Blue Letter Bible, it was saying something about, like, chastise, like, admonish. It's like, the first one is like, here, this is what you do, but then if you disobey, it's like, no, that's not going to work out here for you. So, <laughs> so the, then he corrects us accordingly. And then um, I, was, I was looking in, in Proverbs, Proverbs 15:10 it says harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way and for he, for 
words. Harsh discipline is for him who forsakes the way, and he who hates correction will die. Amen. Hey, Ralphie. To the other thing, and again, I am not sure if it's with the words, but the simplicity of disciple being has that idea. I'm, I'm sure being. Uh, disciplined and ultimately if it's Talmudine I, I believe it's taught ones so you're being taught <laughs> and hopefully if you're being taught someone you stick to what you're being taught and you go outside about <laughs> what you're being taught then there's consequences, consequences. right yeah amen to that okay um, let's look at Isaiah 61 1 and I'm putting this up here because our prophet portion is in Isaiah chapter 61 and I want to well let's go through this and you'll kind of see where I'm going so it says the spirit of the master Yahuwah is upon me because Yahuwah has anointed me to bring good news to the meek he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim release to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound who is this spoken to well let me rephrase it did the Messiah quote this? Who did he speak it to when he spoke it? And where was he when he said it? In synagogue in what city? Capernaum? Is it Capernaum? Nazareth. Oh, Nazareth. His hometown. So he's in the northern kingdom territory where he spent most of, probably 90-something percent of his, his mission. He's in the northern kingdom territory, his own hometown, and he's quoting this as if he believes this is for those people. He's not doing it. I mean, if it's for the Jews down in Jerusalem, he'd be speaking it down there because he's saying this is fulfilled in your hearing. Your hearing. So if it's supposed to be fulfilled in someone else's hearing, why not speak it over there, right? But he's fulfilling it in the northern kingdom's ear because they are the ones that are going to be released. Uh, they were the captives. They were the ones who were bound. So... He said this in Isaiah 61, and it had been fulfilled in the hearing. Chapter 60, the previous chapter, is dedicated to a glorified Zion. Read it. In your, so here we go. Messiah is going to now speak to the northern kingdom, but the whole chapter before he says this is, is a whole chapter dedicated to Zion. I find that amazing in context of what we just talked about, the the contrast of Zion and Sinai. Just interesting. Uh, I thought that, wow, that's, this, pick, this portion of the prophets to speak about is really awesome. So then verse 2 says, To proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our Elohim. There's the, there's the consequence part. <laughs> to comfort all who mourn. Wait. To appoint unto those who mourn in Zion. Remember, he was speaking this part of the Scripture to the northern kingdom. To give them embellishment for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, and they shall be called trees of righteousness, a planting of Yahuwah to be adorned. Oh, boy. You people are adornment. <laughs> what a thing to think about, huh? Did you have your hand up? <laughs> okay. 
Verse 5, And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of, fo- of the foreigner be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you, we just talked about this last week, what did he say we were going to be? A kingdom of what? Priests. He says, but you shall be called priests of Yahuwah. Servants of our Elohim shall be said of you. You shall consume the strength of all Europe, whatever, of all the nations, and boast in their esteem. Instead of your shame and reproach, they rejoice a second time in their portion. Therefore, they take possession a second time in their land. Everlasting joy is theirs. Hmm. Verse 8, For I, Yahuwah, love right ruling. I hate robbery for burnt offerings. And I shall give their reward in truth and make an everlasting covenant with them. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring in the midst of the peoples. There's a reason why I included these in here. All who see them shall acknowledge them and they are the seed Yahuwah has blessed. You're the seed he's blessed. I greatly rejoice in Yahuwah, my being exalts in my Elohim. I remember last week we talked about a, a, a new kind of thing. It was called a Hapax Legomena. <laughs> Everybody remember that? This red word is one of those words in our prophet portion. And it's Yat, and it only appears once in all of Scripture, and it means to wrap. Why is that unique? Because he is going to wrap you you in garments of deliverance. Ooh, boy. That was so special that that wrapping only gets one word of it in the whole of Scripture. He has covered you with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Whoa, what an awesome thing. So the master will cause righteousness and gladness to spring up before all the nations. Isn't that kind of what's happening now? What he has taught will now sprout and bear fruit finally with, with hearts that want to be obedient, hearts that yearn for him, hearts that wanted instead of the other way that we've seen in Scripture. These are hearts that want, like what I saw here dancing on the floor. Hearts that delight in his Shabbat, that delight in his ways, that delight in his family, that delight in his word. Wow. Okay. So we are going to... No. This is chapter 62 of Isaiah. For Zion's sake, I am not silent. And for Yushalayim's sake, I do not rest. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a lamp that burns. And you shall be a crown of commonness in the hand of Yahuwah and a royal headdress in the hand of your Elohim. You shall no more be called forsaken. you got to get this. And your land shall not be called desolate. For all of you are going to have a new name, and it's called My Will. Now, why is that interesting? Why is it that you're going to get a name called my will? It's because, what does he say? That his righteous should do what? They should do his will. If you're doing his will, he's calling you 
You're, you're, a, you're a revelation and evidence of his will being born and, and roaming in the earth. That's what the oaks of righteousness are. You're his will being manifested to the nations. That's awesome. That's awesome. Oh, man. So I'm going to read it to you in another version. Because of Zion, I will not be silent. And because of Jerusalem, I'll not slacken until my righteousness goes forth like light and my salvation shall burn like a torch. Wow. Okay, so I have a question for you. We've got a boundary around Mount Sinai. My question to you is, and we're entering our Torah portion, are you resisting sin to the point of repenting and doing battle? Because in our Torah portion, the Almighty is resisting the community and congregation by putting a boundary in place to prevent unholiness from approaching Him. And have you set the boundaries to prevent unholiness from approaching you that would defile you? We're to walk like He walks, right? If He's going to set a boundary around the mountain so that the unholiness doesn't... I mean, He's telling them, wash yourself, sanctify yourself, get ready. But he knows that not every he knows that not everybody in that six million or four million are going to be obedient. He knows that they're not all going to do it exactly. I mean, come on, think about it. Does everybody turn their taxes in on the right time? No. So he sets a boundary to protect the people, not only them but to guard himself. My question is: Are you guarding yourself by setting the right boundaries? to keep the unholiness of the world from coming too close to you. That's your challenge today. So we're going to dig into the first part of our Torah portion, the first commandment. We, Mike did a good job of talking about this. Where are you at, Mike? I don't see you. He brought, did a good job. We went through we're the, in, in uh, Numbers, or Deuteronomy 5, where it talks about this, the Ten Commandments again. And so here we are. The first commandment is not what everyone thinks is the first commandment. They all think it's, you know, do not set idols before yourself. You know, do not make idols. First commandment is, I am Yahweh Elohim who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why? Because he is putting his signature on it, that I am the one who is going to be referenced from here forth, because everything from here forth is just saying Elohim. But as Ward points out, there's a lot of Elohims. There's other gods. So, you know, these other gods, but all can say, they're worshiping me because I am the Lord they're referring to. I am the one that they're, I am the Elohim that they're referencing. I'm going to lay claim to those commandments. No, but when you set the true, only true Elohim in, in front of you, now it sets the presence of who is the one making this covenant. That's why it's important. So as noted above in prevailing Jewish tradition, verse 2 alone compromises the first of the ten words. In other traditions, it goes with verse 3 or 4, with verses 3 through 6 to form the opening commandment. Verse 2 lays down the foundation of what follows. It is preamble. Yet more than preamble, Elohim is and is the one who gave Israel its existence as a nation. God brought it into history for Elohim's own purposes because Israel is to achieve through service to Elohim what the whole of mankind, even after the flood, 
proved incapable of doing. So Israel was redeemed by Elohim so that it might redeem humanity. So the first commandment establishes at once that Israel is a historical people anchored in the people's experience and validated by their free acceptance. Here's that will of his divine will. Wow. It's awesome. If you have comments or things, raise your hand. Mike will get it away to you. Okay. So the reference to Egypt is thus not a geographic, but a spiritual notation. Having traversed the road from slavery to freedom, Israel can now fulfill its destiny. Well, think about it. Have we all made the transition from slavery to freedom? So like what's happening here, we should be ready to fulfill our destiny. And it is the duty of all Israelites to do their individual share. So the first commandment is, in fact, a confessional credo, Israel acknowledging that Elohim delivered them. And if you do my will, I am Yahuwah, the merciful one. Here comes the good, the teaching. But if not, I will be Elohim, <laughs> the dispenser of stern justice. <laughs> Polly has her hand up. Israel is dependent on Elohim, while Elohim expects Israel to do his will, Thus seen, the first of the words is both preamble and character, the cornerstone of Israel's covenant and humankind's salvation. Yes, Polly. I want to talk about fulfilling destiny, but I need to go back to the picture you showed in Zion, and you don't have to go back there, just that's what I'm going to talk about. So a little more detail to that, okay, is that Barry talked about when the ark was uh, brought to the Hargroves. And we have a video that we're putting together that we will finish on some Shabbat and bring it to you. But it was first in his heart that he wanted a ark that housed a Torah scroll. For years before he got it, the desire was there. And he had a great point and lesson in that that sometimes your destiny is fulfilled by that desire first being placed in your heart. So the picture that you showed is a little picture of a fulfilled destiny because there was a desire in Mark's heart to go to the land. And it looked absolutely impossible. He did not know how with his large family he would ever make it there. But the father, by his great abundant hand of provision, made a way for not only him to go, but to take me and four of our children, four of our eight children with us. And it took about a year. He gave him a second uh, employment. He worked two for two, two different jobs that year, saved for a year. And you didn't know at the time when we first wanted to go that the equinox and the um, first day of the month was going to coincide at the same time that year. While we were there. Yeah. While we were there. So as it became closer and he found out that we were going to actually get to go, that it was going to happen, that everything was going to be in place, and we get there on that day, he got us up about four in the morning. We walked quite a ways with um, a couple of friends of ours that were from Canada that were there with us. We, I don't think, did we walk five miles? It seemed like to me it was five probably, miles. But probably. We <laughs> to were in, get there. We were in the city. We were there off of Yehuda Street. So, Not only did that happen on a Shabbat, 
that that occurred on a Shabbat for that first day, that equinox to happen on a Shabbat. But Mark was also asked later that day to speak to a group of people. And the Torah portion that you read and spoke on was that on the first day of the month the, the, about the tabernacle being erected. Exodus and so, 30, I think. Yeah. Yes, the, the fulfillment of destiny first starts with that desire in our heart. And look what happened just yeah. because of that desire, what it, where it took you to. Yep. yep, good word. Thank you. Okay, so he is the one that brings all these wonderful things, but he's going to bring a dispenser of stern justice. All right, so among important biblical references to the Shabbat, the following may be noted. These references do not in any way indicate their relation to the historical development of the institution. So I wanted to share with you a few things that is said about the Shabbat. We're jumping from the first commandment to the fourth commandment. Genesis 2, 2-3, God rests on the seventh day, which, however, is not called here the Shabbat. Exodus 31, Ezekiel 20, the Shabbat is a sign of the covenant. Manna was not to be gathered on this day. People should not move about unduly, nor labor is to be performed to give both humans and animals an opportunity for rest. No fire is to be kindled on the Shabbat, and special sacrifices are to be offered. Commercial activities are incompatible with the Shabbat. The penalty for desecration is death and cutting off from the people. Israel will be exalted when it observes the true spirit of the Shabbat. And if you refrain from trampling Shabbat, from pursuing your affairs on my holy day, you and if you call the Shabbat a delight, the eternal holy day honored, I will set you astride the heights of the earth and let you enjoy the heritage of your father Jacob. In the end of time, all people shall observe the new moons and Shabbats. Such passages hint at varied emphasis that the observance of the day received at various times before it assumed its form as a day of complete rest, joy, prayer, and study, and was embellished by popular love and practice and secured by traditional law and Torah. So these are some things I thought was interesting about the Shabbat day. So the Shabbat observance in latter days, this is interesting. More than Israel has guarded the Shabbat. The Sabbath has, the Shabbat has guarded Israel. This saying well describes the unique position the Shabbat assumed in our brother Judah's history. In observance, I'm sorry, its observance stretches from dusk on Friday to dark on Saturday and is marked by family observance, synagogue attendance, and total rest. Its mood is both serene and joyous. Morning practices cease on this day, as does fasting except on Yom Kippur. It is the time for recollecting Elohim's goodness and acknowledging Elohim's sovereignty. It provides for social balm, intellectual expansion, and a shutting out of the day's cares. It is spiritually and physically restorative, the crown of the week's labors. Something to keep in mind about the Shabbat. I have one other thing here to say. The Shabbat in Christianity. Early Christians observed the biblical Shabbat. In time, however, when the influence of the Ebionite Christians, who had close links with Judaism, waned, the observance was gradually shifted to Sunday, called the Lord's Day, in memory of the story of the resurrection in Revelation 1.10 
and the fourth commandment was declared abrogated along with the biblical law of circumcision. Sunday was made the official day of Christian worship in 321 CE and did not at first carry the demand for rest attached to the biblical and post-biblical Shabbat. These are historical evidences of what took place in the first, second century, and third century of uh, what's known as the beginnings of the church. Okay. If you have comments, raise your hand. I want to go over three through seven. Don't have any other Elohims against my face. Do not make for yourself carved images of any likeness, which is in heaven above or earth beneath, and which is the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, am your Elohim, am a jealous El, visiting the crookedness of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, showing loving kindness to those who, who love me and guard my commands. There is the four, three, four, five, and six are one. Verse seven, do not bring the name of Yahweh, your Elohim, to nothing. For Yahweh does not leave the one unpunished who brings his character to nothing. Don't bring his character down. Wearing the tzitzit and doing things opposed to what God is teaching would be bringing the character down. Okay? Verse 12, Respect your father and your mother, so that the days prolonged upon the soil, which Yahweh your Elohim is giving you, no murdering, which is different than killing, do not commit adultery, do not steal, and don't bear false witness. So, that brings me to love. You've got this big emblem of love. Then you've got the Ten Commandments. Five of them talking about how to love Elohim. Five about how to love mankind. And so the whole rest of the Torah and the prophets hang on this whole idea, which our Master says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six: 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the Torah? And Yahushua said to them, You shall love Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest command. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbors yourself. On these two commands hang all of the Torah and the prophets because it's all about how to love. Teaching us how to love God. How to, if you look at the whole of Torah, if you just did, a, just did a summary through the whole 613 commands, you can see that it really is about showing us how to love mankind and how to love Him. This is what it's about. God's wanting to show us. Because doesn't God love us? Yes, He does. Now, will he be faithful in his word and bring in consequences when we go? Yes, he will, because it's what he said he would do. But he loves us. Okay. Now, in verses 17, I've got the big number 10. Verse 17 is the 10th commandment. You notice it says, you shall not. 18, 19, 20, 21 and 22 is talking about what happened when they had heard the 10th commandment, freaking out. Man, we don't want to hear that no more. That's gonna, we're going to die. If we hear one more word, we're going to go completely prostrate, and our heart's going to stop. Moses, please speak the rest of them. Do you think for a second they thought he had ended at 10? No. The fact is, when we look at verse 23, Vert command 11 starts, as you can see, it says, you shall not. Hand up here. Go ahead. I have heard several teachings on this topic, but I learned something that I did not know before. So 
I thought originally all 613 of his vote were actually on the two tablets, but so he was re- he was going to read all six. Ter- I think he was going to read all 613, and then they asked him to stop, so that's why I stopped, and that's why there's only ten. Is that is that true? The 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 ten went on the. Here's my this is my opinion. Okay, I'm going to give you my opinion. So the ten goes on the stone because this is the ones that came out of his voice. This is different because he's speaking them. All the rest of them are coming out of Moses' voice, coming from Moses' word. Are they all his word? I think the whole, the, the whole of Torah where God has spoken, whether man is speaking for him, like the prophet says, thus says the Lord, or I heard the word of the Lord come to me. I think all of that should be red ink, just like when Yeshua is speaking in the New Testament, it's red ink. I think it should be a complete separation showing mankind. This is where he has spoken, and the rest of it is where man is speaking and commenting or whatever, uh, elaborating on what was said. This is what I believe is different and why the 10 is separate than the other 602. So that's my, my point on it is that these first 10 were, were, were uh, do I, and I don't want to say we're, we're all 613 on the front and the back. It could have been. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I know that the 10 are on here. And what, the point for me is not, it's not a debate on what's on them, what was on the tablets. The point is God has given us the whole of Torah, teaching us. The whole, this whole message is about teaching. He's teaching us how to behave like kingdom citizens. And that's the point. And we don't have to get into debates on you know, whether it was 10 or, or 600. We don't have to get into, you know, all these things are things that would cause division. The point is, God has spoken and he's declared to us how to live. And that's what we need to take the heed to our hearts and to our minds. How to live. Okay? So I just wanted to point out that the commands from God didn't end at verse 17. They continued starting in 23. And if you, if you, as you're reading the Torah, you can see they just continue. Okay? And, you know, he speaks to the prophets and tells the prophets things to say. So, all right. Verse 24. An altar of earth you shall make for me. And it goes on here. You shall build them from, uh, you shall not build them from cut stones. You shall not go up the steps in the altar. You shall not reveal your shame on it. So what Elohim wanted to do here at Mount Sinai is teach his people how to live like kingdom citizens. I said that. So I have this to share with you. Back to Hebrews 12.5. Discipline. Here's a little word on this word. Pahadiah. Discipline. In classical Greek, the noun, pahadia, and other words in this group originally referred to the instruction of children, as the root pious means child or boy. It denotes the upbringing and handling of the child which is growing up to maturity and which thus needs direction, teaching, instruction, and certain measure of compulsion in the form of discipline or even chastisement. This word group truly characterizes Greek culture because education was central. Paul reflects this attitude in Ephesians 6.4, which I'd shown in that previous slide, where it's predominantly the father who is responsible to bring children up in the nurture and fear. What does fear of the Lord mean? Walking in his commands. Hand is up back here. So as the mic makes its way to you, I want to ask this. So after the death and resurrection of the Messiah, here in Hebrews chapter 12, they are calling people to teach 
uh, to the teachings of Elohim, which is the Torah and the prophets. They're saying, don't stop. Don't regard lightly. Keep walking in God's truth. That's awesome. Yes. Speaking of the word discipline, um, I, I tell my kid often, um, you know, as far as their education, they, um, if they're going to go to higher education, like in university or whatever, it, it takes a lot of discipline. I talk a lot about discipline to them because it all starts when you're young. You have to have discipline. It's like you have that drive to want to do what's right. So when you get to the higher educations, you're going to have, uh, I guess, discipline to succeed. The same thing with his commands. We've got to have that discipline growing up and young so we could reach that point where we are going to run the race and, and win. You know, it's interesting because uh, I've, I've said this before. Many of you know that, you know, I, I spent the early part of my uh, youth or before I got married into martial arts. And, of course, they call this a discipline. Look at any various style or whatever form that a person is learning. It's called a discipline. Are any of them getting beaten with a rod if they don't? No. It, they're being trained on how to do something a certain way so they learn how to defend themselves. But it's called a discipline. And that's, again, showing you that this idea of teaching is wrapped up into this idea of a discipline. Okay? So, did you have something you want to share? Okay. 1 Timothy 4.13 Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture to ex exhortation and, that's our Greek word, teaching, training, not, not spanking, but discipline. So uh, this word in 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul tells Timothy that there is one more thing that he is to preach, and that's doctrine. But whose doctrine? To the ancient Greeks, this Greek word meant imparting information and later the teaching of skills. 2 Timothy 3.16 says the same thing here. It says, all scriptures inspired by Elohim and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in abolishing the Torah. No. For training in righteousness. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. doesn't sound like people that are abolishing the Torah here. I'll read to you one more. 1 Timothy 4.16 says, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Preserve, I'm sorry, persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, that's absolutely hard to, I mean, from our upbringing in the church, he's saying, if basically, I'm going to narrow it down, he says, if you keep the Torah and do what the Torah tells you to do, it's going to be your salvation and salvation to all who hear you speak it. Now, most people, and they would go, oh, that's not right, that's not true. But that's what he's saying. Just look up the words. If we look at the definition of the words, this is what the man is telling us. Yes. 
I think what he's saying, what you're saying is salvation is something we're pursuing, not something we possess. We're not saved until we get to the end of the road. And he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen. And Christianity mixes it around and says, you're saved now. And forever. But it's something we pursue. We're pursuing this salvation. Yep. I mean, Israel, it says in Exodus chapter 12, that God says that I saved Israel out of Egypt. Did that save salvation continue forever? No, because they got kicked out. They got, a nation came and took them. They were, they, were, they were booted out of the kingdom and everything else. So, yeah, it's just, yes. What discipline? <laughs> um, you know, when your kids make mistakes, you don't just whack them on the butt just you know and walk away and then they're going to learn anything <laughs> it's uh it's you talk to them and, and teach them and tell them this is what you did wrong and that's what the Ruach Kodesh does for us and, and as we read the the scriptures uh we learn how the things we're doing are wrong and how to correct them and how to, to live and um you know that's how many of you have been in a conversation with somebody and might even be your children and they're off on la la land you can tell they're just not paying attention to what you said this is what our father gets so upset at his people <laughs> yeah some husbands are doing that <laughs> so <laughs> so uh you know the father is like you know i'm telling you and you're like off in la la land here you're just not you're not paying attention it can be frustrating I'm going to read one other passage for you. Ephesians 4.14 says, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Same word. So we have learned today that Elohim wants to teach and instruct us in his ways, his paths. We are not to walk in the ways of man, which he has created, that's contrary to what God has said. Would you stand with me? And I'm going to read to you as a final word for you what the scriptures testify about his ways and his paths. Ponder on these things, since this whole message is about teaching, which is what's happening at Sinai, This is what the scripture says. Psalm 25, make me know your ways, O Yahuwah. Teach me your paths. Teach me your way, O Yahuwah, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Teach me your way, O Yahuwah. I will walk in your truth, your emmet. Unite my heart to fear your name. Now, think of that. Fear the Lord. Unite my heart to keep the commands. I have told of my ways and you have answered me. Teach me your statutes. Now for those of you that are new today, I put this up here for you because this word statutes is this word dakayoma. And when it's in a plural form, which it is in this verse, it specifically only, it's right in the lexicon, it says it's only used for the divine precepts of the Mosaic law. And remember, we've talked about this is the same word used in Revelation about the fine linen of the, the bride. 
that she's wearing this fine linen, which is righteousness, which is this word, the precepts of the Torah. Psalm 119, teach me, O Yahweh, the way of your Mosaic law, and I shall observe it until the Messiah comes. No. Until the end, like you just said, Dan. Until the end, when the race is over, right? Psalm 143.8 Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk, for to you I lift up my soul. So we've learned some things today. So Father, we come to you right now. We thank you for the... The revelation, the, we can break down the words and we find that there's no more jostling around trying to figure out how to interpret it. You, you've, you've laid it down and there's, there's a dictionary here of what these words mean and we can search it out and we can find out exactly what's being said. And we thank you that you've opened our eyes to the truth and it's no longer being, being fed to us in a way that it, it puts your word aside. But Father, we are a people that want to walk in your word. We want to learn from you and we're thankful that you are the teacher. We are your students. We thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy, your loving kindness and faithfulness, and the blood of the Lamb that has made it all possible for us. We give you praise. In Master Yahushua's name, amen. Now we get to say Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you all for joining us online. Thank you all here. Have a blessed rest of your Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom.